You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. We are not uh, proponents of the supercycle uh, thesis. Um, do the analysis we've carried out uh, previously over the last uh, couple of years. Principally, you won't know uh, there was a supercycle until after it's over. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. And in today's episode, we're going to be getting a commodity outlook for 2023 from Alex Christopher. He is a multi-commodity analyst with the CRU Group. Alex, welcome on to the show for the first time. Perhaps uh, give a little more information about yourself and your company, the CRU Group, please. Thank you very much, Bill. Uh, so yeah, thank you for inviting me to talk today and share my thoughts with the Mining Stock Education uh, listeners. It is an absolute pleasure to you know to be here um, and at the start of what could be a very very interesting year. Um, so yeah, I'll start with the introduction of myself. So I am um, Alex Christopher, a multi-commodity analyst here at CRU Group in London, England. Um, I'm a former exploration geologist of around uh, three years' experience. Not a, not a long t- amount of time, but a lot happened in that time. Uh, in that role, I worked for a private equity group um, with global interests. Uh, during my time, I had the opportunity to research and physically explore in seven countries, uh, including uh, Norway, uh, the US, uh, Montenegro, and the Republic of Ireland, uh, focusing on base, precious, and battery metal exploration. Um, as you can imagine, it was a you know a well-built experience in a short period of time, as I say. Um, I then made the move, move uh, and jumped behind the desk, so to speak, uh, in mid-2021 to join the CRU group uh, in my current role uh, in the analysis division. Um, you know, primarily, I conduct uh, you know, cross-commodity analysis, uh, keeping things high level um, as a part of a central team, which is tasked with this. And I also hold uh, day-to-day responsibility for content delivery to our exclusive partner in the credit rating agency, Bitch Ratings. Uh, you know, CRU Group itself, um, I should mention, for those who don't know us, we are a business intelligence company uh, focused on the mining, metal uh, and fertilizer space. Uh, we're around 360 people uh, worldwide in all the classic uh, mine destinations. Uh, we're independent, uh, you know, we don't hold positions, uh, so our views aren't colored by certain positions that you know, we, you know, where people may want to take. Um, we cover everything from you know, the steel price uh, you know, tomorrow, um, you know, there are still price benchmarks um, that, that we have at CRU Group. Um, you know, prices, uh, market fundamentals over the medium term and long term. And in addition, we host uh, international conferences uh, in, uh, in the metal, steel, and fertilizer space, uh, including the World Aluminium Conference, for example, coming up in May. And finally, we have a new sustainability division, which aims to answer the big questions on sustainability as this topic becomes ever more important on the international stage and particularly of course in the mining metal and fertilizers uh, space thank you for that background alex Uh, let's jump in with our first question goldman sachs they are seeing a supply driven commodity super cycle and they expect commodities to be the best performing asset class this year would the cru group hold a similar view so great question. Um, so uh, here at CRU, uh, we are not uh, proponents of the supercycle uh, thesis. Um, do the analysis we've carried out uh, previously over the last uh, couple of years. Principally, you won't know uh, there was a supercycle until after it's over. Um, so if we dig into this um, a little bit, um, so uh, commodity price movements can be divided into a number of distinct phases, uh, one of which, of course, is a super cycle, the others being long-run pricing trends and business cycles. 
um, sort of what exactly is Superlacker? What underpins this? So we see this uh, as you know longer term price increases, um, you know, which affects a very broad range of commodities. Uh, you know, note um, this doesn't have to be direct on all commodities, but it often reverberates, you know, where it isn't direct. Uh, typically lasting, you know, 20 years or more um, and are caused by years of low investment, uh, insufficient capacity and historically low um, prices. Further to that, um, in the, uh, the shift in environmental uh, political factors, uh, holding back effective supply uh, and large and persistent step up in demand, further support uh, super cycles. Now, you know, example of this kind of step up or demand pool, which I referred to there, you know, uh, this was last clear in the last evident uh, super cycle uh, through the 1990s uh, to 2000s, uh, driven by the structural demand shift um, created by the modernization of China. Now, what we are seeing now uh, are shorter term, in our opinion, are shorter term price increases or, you know, business cycles. Uh, you know, these are caused by a temporary sh uh, shortage in stocks and supply, supply disruptions, and sudden bursts and uh, potential sudden demand. And, uh, sorry, potential uh, sudden demand uh, bursts and demand, uh, which we've seen, you know, from the pandemic uh, and the war in Ukraine. Now, you know, right now there are some supportive factors of a super cycle you know, at present uh, across some markets, uh, and increasing weight uh, on these uh, because of the shocks I mentioned. But uh, you know, for example, if we take this demand pool uh, part of it, which is you know very important, there is no doubt, for example, that a transition, uh, energy transition, is a common source of notable demand uh, for a number of commodities. But this needs to be balanced against other factors, uh, which could be commodity specific. So you know, uh, if we take copper, for example. You know, will supply meet demand in the medium term? Will there be substitution effects, uh, demand destruction of high with, with high prices, the effects of recent recycling? And if we do look at uh, copper, just take one example to kind of round off uh, this point. Um, if you look at supply in medium term, you know we do not um, you know, uh, expect a supply gap to open up. So, so we do expect a supply gap to open up uh, at the end of the forecast period, uh, being around 2027, 20, uh, you know, following a period of surplus beforehand. The move uh, to a deficit um, at the end of this forecast period is a precursor to and a reminder of a potentially wider you know, long-term supply gap that exists within the copper industry. You know, consequently, we you know we uh, forecast the price uh, trending up towards you know ten thousand dollars per ton. I think people throw that uh, figure around uh, all the time um, in in the forecast period. Uh, you know, this view is underpinned by our own project gateway methodology, um, which we use to assess a number. Uh, sort of the number and volume of copper and the supply gap and how big it is, et cetera, we take into account changes uh, in recycling rates, uh, the scrap market dynamics, and from things like building life cycles. So those that forecast very high prices in this sector, for example, uh, you know, may not take uh, such factors into account. And our view uh, of an upward trend toward $10,000 per term in the medium term is not necessarily supported in the long term, which then puts into question a decisive super cycle outlook, particularly when you do think of a substitution of copper, for example, by aluminium in, in the renewable sectors. So to kind of sum up, you know, uh, we can't say um, we know there's any conclusive evidence uh, that a super cycle is beginning or happening now, but there are certainly some supportive elements out there. Elon Musk tweeted yesterday, and this really kind of caught me off guard. He said, no change in copper production is required for the transition to sustainable energy. Uh, would CRU's position agree with that based on what you just say? 
Um, so our view is that we expect, uh, you know, from the uh, you know, electric vehicles, uh, you know, boom, which we'll, I'm sure we'll get to again later, that the requirement for copper, so the demand for copper will quadruple um, by uh, 2030. Now, in the project pipeline, um, so we have, you know, have some of these factors kind of uh, factored in. In a project pipeline, there does exist at this time um, enough supply in the long term uh, to fill the gap. But what we should say, and, uh, and I make this point, uh, you know, uh, uh, but, you know, very, very clearly, is that the products in the product pipeline are often much smaller uh, than smaller projects and not the huge, you know, uh, tier one projects, uh, because, you know, there is a reluctance among, uh, you know, uh, major companies to, you know, commit the capital expenditure required. Um, so I would say, yes, there is, um, yes, there is enough in the pipeline. Obviously, how that pans out in practice demand, uh, uh, depends on a few uh, factors including obviously as i'm sure you're aware the situation we now see in uh, south america um with a lot of the kind of protests and obviously issues around water scarcity so your group advises firms and individuals uh, on where the, you see the commodity prices going when you look back on your calls and forecasts of last year what did you get most accurate and inaccurate and if you could break down uh, that assessment for us please yeah, uh, sure. So um, first thing to say, so at CRU, we often uh, represent um, our price forecasts on a cross-commodity heat chart. Um, so this includes um, 38 key commodities across the metals, precious metals, fertilizers, and raw materials uh, sectors. Um, this basically shows year-on-year -year price gains for commodity groupings um, overall and places uh, individual commodities in temperature ranges. Uh, so the kind of, you know, hot would be above 15% and freezing would be uh, below uh, uh, minus 15% uh, minus 15 and at five, um, you know, 5% intervals in between. So in late 2021 to early 2022, um, I remember writing an insight at that point as well. Uh, so, you know, um, I can speak to this uh, quite well. So the crude commodity basket uh, showed that we expected prices overall to edge higher by just under around 10%, with some big rises, um, particularly the fertilizers, and some big decliners, uh, namely being uh, steel. Now, by and large, in 2022, this did occur, but the kind of magnitude and scale did differ. Now, this is obviously due to the supply shock uh, created by, you know, the, and the implications of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, you know, this was particularly felt uh, in markets where yeah, Russia, Ukraine and Belarus, uh, for that matter, were key global and regional uh, you know, suppliers such as oil, uh, natural gas, uh, nickel, steel um, and fertilizers. So looking at um, steel, just for, just for an example, so uh, North American HRC, which is hot roll coil uh, steel, and we're expecting a drop year on year um, you know, to the, in freezing category, so a drop of over 15%. In the end, because of the spike uh, caused by the, the uh, war in Ukraine, uh, we saw over the, uh, the spring and the summer, this has ended up uh, somewhere around 10%, so a bit less, because obviously the kind of, you know, the price elevation that occurred there was obviously quite stark. Another example um, of the effects of war would be in the nickel sector. Uh, we have this in the as a mild winner, so around five uh, five to ten percent. Uh, but because of the uncertainty that dogged the market, because Russia is a huge uh, um, obviously producer uh, of nickel, um, this this kind of uncertainty that it lasted for quite a long time um, until later on in the year, until the LME, for example. Uh, confirm that they weren't going to ban uh, Russian-sourced uh, nickel. Um, so in the end, nickel ended up being a much bigger winner 
than uh, we expected earlier in the year. So overall, I think we've been pretty accurate, <laughs> um, economic black swans aside, um, which I think is a testament to the global reach of the uh, CIU group. What about for 2023? What's your most bullish or your hottest commodity that you forecast? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> using your <Exactly>. language. <laughs> Um, yeah, so when talking about uh, you know, the hottest commodity, uh, commodity you know, the best performing commodities, you know, we can talk about uh, simple year-on-year annual average changes, like I talked about there. Um, um, to that end, 2023 does not look um, like a great year for commodities at all. Um, you know, with the the commodity basket as a whole expected to decline just under 20 percent, um, um, with all groupings in that um, seeing declines. Uh, fertilizers taking the biggest hit. Um, there are some current, currently some individual gainers. Uh, so lithium on a contract by price basis, I should stress, um, that's, that's looking up. Um, and lebanon uh, and platinum amongst a small handful of others. Um, on gold, which uh, obviously people uh, are typically quite interested in, uh, we are cautiously um, uh, bullish. Uh, prices uh, should inch higher uh, as the dollar weakens with a more hawkish uh, Federal Reserve. Um, any hints of rising uh, hawkishness, which is uh, you know is possible, obviously would put downward pressure on the metal. Um, hence this cautious, uh, cautiously bullish uh, tone that we're taking. Um, however, um, you know I would say you know is a simple year-on-year assessment the best way to look at things. Um, you know there are lots of reasons why a simple year-on-year average price change is not enough to call it the best performing commodity. You know, context is of course uh, needed. You know, so you know, one, you know, prices are coming down um, as a as, as as a part of a normal price cycle. Um, they are coming down uh, from, in some cases, quite exceptional highs, uh, particularly in the case of steel. Um, you know, a key thing also, and I can't stress this enough, is margins, margins, margins. You know, price is only relevant in the context of cost. It's the margin between cost and price that really matters. You know, uh, an example of this would be if we take iron ore. So iron ore, uh, you know, trading at $120 per dry ton, which was the average 2022 price, a significant proportion of production is profitable uh, with the price at that level. Um, you know, first quartile producers, you know, were making exceptional uh, profits, you know, with their kind of cost looking at around, you know, $40, $50 per dry ton. You know, however, moving into this year now um, and the back end of last year in fairness, uh, margins are now being squeezed. Um, last year, low-cost producers in the iron ore sector saw their costs rise more uh, than higher-cost higher producers due to higher exposure to things like the oil price, um, as well as a proportionally higher increase in labour costs uh, and, and freight. If we look at, for example, uh, the base metals, you know, margins again high last year. If we zero in on copper, um, you know, while margins were high, there was uh, there was also uh, there was also a decline. Um, and in those margins, as inflation, uh, you know, uh, hit input costs, particularly labour, um, and obviously this still persists. That being said, you know, we expect copper to be you know, um, somewhere around the eight thousand uh, dollars per ton uh, price range this year. Um, at that price, you know, a overwhelming majority of copper producers um, on an all-sustaining cash cost basis are profitable. Um, so you know, that's you know, that's something to think about there. And a kind of final example of this kind of you know, margins uh, point, um, you know, steel. So by contrast, you know, steel has now come through the other side of what was a you know was a once in a generation price story uh, characterized characterized by huge uh, uh, spikes in margins, and now price is now falling to kind of you know normal uh, levels. 
And uh, if you could pinpoint the coldest or bear, most bearish commodity for this year, could you elaborate on that too, please, Alex? Yes, uh, for sure, Bill. Um, so if we look at kind of the groupings, uh, so I think as a group fertilizers, um, I think I mentioned uh, before, so we expect kind of nitrogen prices in the fertilizer industry to decouple from costs, um, which are expected to obviously increase again in 2023. We expect the uh, prices to couple as there is ample supply of nitrogen uh, um, products around. Now, principally, uh, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine again um, uh, curtailed uh, Russian and Belarusian supply. Uh, let's not forget Belarus is a huge uh, producer of um, nitrogen products. Um, um, and, and so the, and the supply of fertilizers and key raw materials such as potash, high-grade phosphate and natural gas, obviously, that was also curtailed too. This supply reduction and subsequent raw materials um, uh, price hike from other producers has raised the cost of fertilizer production uh, in 2022, uh, resulting in historically high price levels. These price levels have, however, proved untenable to most consumers. Uh, so we've seen demand destruction in the, the late half of last year, and we expect this to continue in the sector into 2023. Now, if we look at kind of some kind of bearish factors to consider elsewhere, um, so you know, energy plays an important part, of course, uh, in the metal industry. Um, as is the case in the increasing cost in the fat space, energy-intensive metals also need to wash out uh, this year. The story here uh, comes with some nuance, however, uh, due to some regional factors. So, for example, zinc smelting in Europe is at significant risk um, because of the acute um, energy problem uh, we have uh, here in, in Europe, whereas energy poses less of a risk to copper smelting, for example, in South America, which obviously, however, does face some uh, risks of its own. So, Alex, when we look at the North American versus the European natural gas markets, uh, what's the possible effect on energy intensity and gas intensive commodities? Uh, yeah, OK. So I think the key point uh, um, is European uh, energy and gas industries are almost by definition at this point uh, more at risk. Um, so the U.S. Um, has obviously seen, uh, you know, large price increases, um, although in some areas it's come down now, um, but they are nowhere near the scale um, of, you know, the, the European levels of cost. Uh, so the EU has done very well uh, in diversifying away from Russian dependence uh, with big and rapid investment in LNG capacity and also at reducing demand to ease supply fears. However, it's worth noting that while pipeline gas imports are now close uh, to nil, LNG imports from Russia did hit a record high um, in the EU in 2022, and the, and the Russian nation itself will be increasing capacity in 2023. So while the EU has other agreements uh, in place uh, for LNG imports from elsewhere, the global market remains very tight. Um, the bloc has overcome the challenge this winter, but next winter remains uh, uncertain. Uh, some capacity restarts have been scheduled in some of the uh, some industries, uh, you know, zinc and uh, the vert sector, but things of course remain on edge. And we believe restocking for winter 2023-2024 will be very difficult. And just to kind of illustrate the kind of contrast between North America and Europe, um, for example, if we take steel, uh, you know, US mills are actually a more energy intensive overall but it is European mills that are more at risk uh, due to the supply risk that I pointed out. Okay. And CRU's uh, overall market perspective across the broad commodities complex for 2023, any more you can share here? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, to mention uh, the war in Ukraine uh, again there. So, yep. in 2022, uh, so, you know, obviously most commodity prices 
have now declined from their peaks, uh, you know, uh, resulting from from that uh, supply shock uh, amid concerns, obviously, of an impending global recession. Now, uh, looking ahead, uh, this downward trend, obviously, we do expect uh, to continue into this year um, uh, from a price perspective, except for energy commodities, uh, so natural gas, uh, for example, being one, uh, you know, for which there does remain a upside risk, uh, despite, I have to say, recent better than expected news, uh, which uh, people may be aware of in the last week coming out of uh, Davos. Um, you know, we expect inflation to continue to fall, but it should be noted that it will still remain high. Um, general sentiment um, is improving, albeit again uh, from very low levels due to the demand uncertainty, uh, particularly re regarding China. So referring back to the crew kind of commodity basket, basket again, um, as I said, we currently expect that to, uh, to decline just under 20% year on year. But with a swift and successful opening of the Chinese economy, uh, you know, this would have a material effect on this. You know, we believe Q1 is likely to be quite choppy, uh, particularly, obviously, with the uh, Chinese New Year that just uh, passed this, uh, this weekend and several of the holidays, which obviously may lead uh, to you know, uh, renewed spikes in the, in the coronavirus, which obviously will have implications uh, for both well, economic activity, production and supply. Um, we do expect things to start to recover uh, there sometime in Q2. Um, but I think the key thing here is uh, it should be noted that at this time, you know, the fundamentals are weak um, across the board in regards to that. However, there has been some encouraging, um, I would say, uh, news regarding iron ore today about the fact that um, it seems like actual actual demand is starting to pick up, but that's uh, very, uh, very early uh, to say that. But just uh, looking uh, just a little bit more deeply, um, so I want to return to margins, margins, margins again, uh, very important. Um, so they continue, they will continue to be squeezed in 2023, um, particularly uh, in Europe, um, as continued curtailment and fertilizers, energy intensive metal sector, et cetera. Um, you know, what is noteworthy um, is that producers enter this economic downturn, uh, generally speaking, this is in a better position than previous cycles um, um, and are generally better placed to weather it, we believe. Um, you know, this is primarily because they're less highly leveraged. Uh, prices are coming down also, um, as I said, but from high levels. Um, and for the most part, um, despite this, margins will remain robust. Um, you know, there's a strong demand story, as I said, uh, you know, for materials exposed to the energy transition and the opening up of China, but not so great as to pull costs significantly up. So for all the mining listeners, such as myself, uh, hearing this analysis, uh, can you tip us off as to CRU groups, the key global trends that we should be aware of as mining investors uh, for the coming year, please? For the coming year? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I think, well, two things Well, two things here. I mean, I can talk to uh, you know, the kind of natural gas situation, uh, but I can you know, first talk to key trends that I keep an eye on. So one thing I like to keep an eye on is, <clears throat> excuse me, is uh, resource uh, nationalism. Uh, so this is something uh, that is always uh, a factor, of course, in the extractive sector. Um, but it particularly comes to the forefront uh, when prices, uh, margins, and costs are high. Um, as a former geologist, I like to say this: you know, geology, of course, uh, dictates where resources are found, and uh, nations rich in natural resources typically, in such times, uh, you know, would like to retain as much value as possible in country instead of profits being uh, lost further down the value chain. And also, um, and it was a case, obviously, to boost investment in country as well. Now, this is what we've seen, uh, for example, uh, last year uh, with Indonesia, 
uh, with um, talk and some action on uh, different bands, uh, be it uh, talking with Nickel Band, the Thermal Coal Band, etc. Um, and this is all done, obviously, in efforts to force uh, more capital investment uh, in the case of nickel, for example, for nickel uh, in-country nickel smelting, which obviously is more lucrative uh, than export uh, than the the, um, the raw material end of things. Um, and also, they've now brought forward uh, talk about a uh, bauxite ban as well for a similar reason. Um, in addition to this, uh, you know, we should keep an eye on there was a global increase in critical minerals policies, uh, which some may consider protectionist, albeit for a good reason. Um, you know, this practice of resource nationalism and you know, possibly protectionism um, also permeates into the energy sector, uh, which again is important, obviously, uh, to, to the metal sector. But this, this, the importance of this is increasing uh, for energy security and stability um, as countries um, are starting to accelerate investment and installations of renewables capacity, which has a clear upside risk for metal demand. Um, you know, a headline to kind of share on this kind of renewable front is that, you know, we expect renewables, and by that I mean uh, wind and solar voltaics, to overtake thermal coal power generation uh, before 2030. I think the other thing, key thing that I would say um, that people need to keep in the back of their minds is the other side of the green energy transition, um, so namely electric vehicles. Um, so EV sales um, have so far, um, uh, at the back end of last year into this year, um, a resisted economic, uh, the bleak economic outlook. Uh, China, of course, um, continues to drive substantial growth in the in the in the NEV market. Uh, Chinese uh, 2022 sales uh, grew uh, over 90% year on year and account for around 60% of sales globally. Uh, in Western Europe, the market has fared worse um, due to supply constraints and rampant energy costs um, that I've referred to, um, which obviously dampen consumer confidence. Um, and in North America, uh, more more relevant to your uh, listeners, um, you know, North America fared much better, and we expect sales to roughly double in 2023. So I think overall, over the medium term forecast, we forecast that your vehicles uh, will move beyond the early adoption phase to the early majority phase. Excellent, Alex. Uh, if listeners want to get in touch with you, uh, what's the best way to do that? Uh, the best way uh, to do that would be uh, to contact me uh, by email. Uh, so my email is annex.christopher at crugroup.com. Uh, please, anyone, you know, uh, feel free to reach out um, about anything I've talked about today or anything else. And I'm happy to help or certainly direct you to um, a, a, a Metal Pacific analyst that may be able to help you further. Excellent. Thank you for coming on the show today, Alex. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. And thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. 
I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really you could do really really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.